0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Ivor Indick, publisher at Girimondo talks to legendary Melbourne poet Pio about poetry both on and off the page, and his new epic poem, Heidi. A quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live over the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. But now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon.
1: My name is Christine Gordon. I am the programming manager for Readings. And on behalf of Readings and on behalf of Jamiramondo Press, it is a treat to have you all here. And of course, today, one of my extraordinary, fortunate things to do is to introduce these two gentlemen to you both, to you all. Of course, we all know Pi as a legendary poet, someone who was born in Greece. Brought up in Fitzroy. Uh, he is the person that has been recording who Melbourne is, what Melbourne is, and why Melbourne is. His uh, latest, uh, most recent book, the third book in his Fitzroy t- trilogy, won the prestigious, and let us all have a little moment to imagine this the prestigious 2020 Judith Wright. Calanthas Ward for Poetry at the Queensland Literary Awards. What an honour. Congratulations to you, Pai. That's such an extraordinary achievement. Ivor is the publisher of Gerimondo Book Imprint. He is the Whitlam Professor in the Writing and Society Research Centre at the Western Sydney University. He was the founding editor of Heat, the co-founder of the Sydney Review of Books. He has written on many aspects of Australian literature, art, architecture and literary publishing. He has been one of the great champions of Pi's work and certainly one of the great champions of poetry. It is how I first met Ivor when he started to introduce me to his extraordinary range of poetry books that he was publishing and I have always been overwhelmed with gratitude that someone like this exists. Over to you, Iva.
2: Thanks very much, Christine. That was a very nice introduction. Um, I just, um, I think we'll just get straight into it, Um, Pai. Nominally, this book is, uh, it's called (coughs) Heidi, and nominally it's about the artist circle uh, around John and Sunday Reid at Heidi in Melbourne. Um, For a period of, I guess, roughly 50, 40 years, 1920s, through the 1930s, through to the 1960s. But um, uh, Sunday Reed doesn't actually make an appearance in the book until halfway through. Uh, True to the epic tradition, she enters in medias res. That's in the middle of things, quite literally. Um, And that's the nature of the book. While while it's focused, at the same time, it's extremely expansive. Uh, And that's where I'd like to start, really, because... You actually start in 1678, I think, with, <laughs> it's true. with, with William Davenant, the playwright, the restoration playwright, um, his development of uh, the movable scenery, uh, a dramatic device. And I thought, or we thought actually, that you might start by reading that poem, sure. which is one of the first poems in the in the collection.
3: The Voyage. On the 19th of April, 1770, the coast of Australia came into view. Go on. In 1661, William Davnet invented movable scenery. Shakespeare couldn't have known. That's an actor for you. Ants don't sleep, dogs don't eat frogs. The stock list On the first fleet, included 87 chickens and 29 sheep. Nothing but scrub, sometimes sand, sometimes stone. Now, using one finger, move the leaf in the bowl to one side. In 1891, Monet drew 15 haystacks. Where am I? Mount Hopeless, Mount Deceptive. Mount Disappointment, Mount Terrible, Mount Despair. Lemon juice dissolves the fossil and the fishbone. Amy McPherson was buried out there with a live telephone. Say knock knock. Who's there? I guess you can't talk. I said bees are deaf. This isn't Saudi Arabia. There are rivers, human hair and fingernails. There are goats in Somalia. But as I said, in 1661, William Davenet invented movable scenery. So
2: this is a piece of scenery that's been moved onto the stage right at the beginning uh, of the performance. And, you know, there are those uh, characteristic features of uh, of your poetry here, uh, proverbs, statistics, um, definitions, aphorisms, facts. facts, of course, facts, endless facts, and inventories. Um, is that part of the movable scenery? Why are you bringing in the concept of movable scenery here?
3: Well. Um, that that poem appears about you know four or five pages in, into the beginning of the book, and um, it was to establish Australia as a zone, as a as a place um, uh, that we were going to talk about, which is really the beginnings of um, sort of the discovery of Australia, and um, the um, uh, William Davenet was actually uh, considered to be. Um, some kind of relative to Shakespeare. And so he extended Shakespeare's plays um, by putting this, this feature in, in, in theatre of movable scenery. And I love the idea that um, no matter where you go, you're actually in a fixed point, in this case, on the stage, which is the beginning of the book. And so all this background motion just whizzes around at a million miles an hour, facts, figures, information, and this vortex, but you are the still point. And in the still point is what the, the basic structure of the book is, because although it looks like I'm going all around the world looking at art and, and looking at the development of art all over Australia to, till we get to um, Heidi, it's actually only one It's sort of a single-minded element in the whole book. And so Heidi is the true sort of center of this book, although it doesn't actually appear with John and Sunday Reed, as you said, until about halfway through the book. And that's because I started to find that the the that the the history of Heidi doesn't start with two individuals. They don't start with John and Sunday Reed, but actually keep going back and back. And this is what I found um, in and why the book was um, written. It was kind of written backwards because I found out that the reason John and Sunday Reed went out to Heidi, out to Heidelberg, was because of the Impressionists. And the reason the Impressionists went out there was because of uh Bouvolo, the the the, um, the the painter who came from Fitzroy. And so the idea of Fitzroy connected to Heidi was actually quite um, a startling kind of connection because I also had a connection with Heidi. And so, uh, you know, like from the 70s onwards. And so...
2: That's through through Barrett Reed, your friendship with Barrett Reed and uh,
3: and Sweeney Reed,
2: Reed, who was the daughter... Sorry, the son of Joy Esther. Yeah. adopted by sunday reed so by that means you really entered the center of the vortex in a way i guess
3: yeah well actually i'm on a real periphery of it you know by i mean john yeah, yeah john sunday reed they on two occasions asked me to go to their place via barrett reed but i didn't like artists you know i i mm. thought they were just wankers and and still do really <laughs> but um and and so I didn't know what I was gonna to say to these people, you know. I mean, you know, I, I didn't know who they were or what they were about or what their significance was. And I think that's one of the reasons that Sweeney Reed liked me was because I wasn't really party to all all this art stuff. You know, I was only interested in poetry. And the only reason I went out sort of to Heidi and, and St. Andrews and was because of Barrett Reed, who was an editor of Overland Magazine and he was going to publish some of my poems. There's a
2: couple of things I want to pick up on there. First of all, you talked about the discovery of Australia, but that poem you quoted, um, you know, has the so-called discoverers in the middle of a landscape um, uh, that disappoints their expectations and in which they're constantly knocking or hearing knocking, but they don't know who's there. So, you know, there is both there and, you know, throughout the book, a sense of uh, priority as well, that that going back, you could go back a lot further.
3: Yeah, certainly. But by the 1600s, you know, you, you, you have people like, uh, you know, Dampier discovering Australia. So, I mean, it depends on how far back you want to go. So, but I, it was really just... W- when I found out the thing about movable scenery... It really excited me because I was already going backwards and backwards, and then I, I you know, put. I've also got a sort of um, um, a Captain Cook discovery, or uh, where I actually merge Captain Cook's discovery of Australia with its, um, uh, bicenten- uh, by its uh, bicentenary celebrations. I actually do a, a cut in there, so the past and the present become melded into one. And this is the thing about the, the vortex, about the movable scenery. I keep shifting the background scenery, but really what I'm looking at in terms of art and poetry in this book is the trajectory and uh, the discovery of Australia, the white discovery of Australia, um, comes with all the baggage of Europe and in particular England. And so the um, in terms of art, they are trying to find um, an art form that fits Australia, but they can't see it, and and bec- they and they can't see it because they've got all this baggage in the background that they're taking along with them. So it's the whole not just, uh,
2: it's not just aesthetic baggage. I mean, um, I think you're very very uh, clear on the uh, domination of uh, the English uh, in cultural institutions uh, and in uh, and in the wealth of the country. Uh, I mean, uh, you do trace in your, uh, I mean, there are a number of threads. There's art history, there's cultural history, there's political history, there's a history of anarchism, for example. But uh, in terms of uh, local art history uh, and the institutions, the state galleries, the National Gallery and so on, uh, you're very clear and you give portraits of uh, uh, the oppressors, that is the English functionaries that have been appointed to control and actually to keep modernism
3: at bay in the country. Well, that's actually very true. What 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 i what astounded me in the research of this book was that they, that um, in terms of Melbourne in particular, the crucible that contained the university, the art gallery, the library, the judiciary, were all melded into one particular person, and that was Redmond Ber. Uh, um, Redmond Barry, Red, Redmond Barry, and because he 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 lays the foundation stone of the University of Melbourne Uni. He lays the foundation stone of the the library. Inside the library is the art gallery. Um, all the books come from from him, and he he's he's the chief judge. I mean, and so the development of art was you know inseparable from all these other institutions. And in Melbourne, it was really stark to see. And, and, and uh, in particular in relationship to Heidi and the demise of Heidi with the Ern malley hoax, um, it, that, that these institutions weren't enough to stomp on the modernism. They had to pull in the army also, yeah. in particular, you know, um, sort of um, 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 Macaulay and Stuart um, in particular. But also John Kerr is involved. So for me... In terms of the anarchist history, in terms of Fitzroy history, in terms of Heidi history, all this thing just was just incredible to find that the upper echelon of of of, of the culture was actually determining what we were going to look look at and how we were going to appreciate this. And so here's, here's the
2: thing: um, uh, you're very good on the dissident elements, uh, the migrant artists, the women artists. <clears throat> the Aboriginal artists and uh, the kind of opprobrium that, that they meet. Um, but the paradox is that the the patrons who are at the very centre of, uh, of this uh, web of modernism are precisely from the class uh, that you scorn and who control those institutions.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, that is um, a much more complicated argument, which I actually deal with in the book. The thing about John and Sunday Reed, and wh- one of the cases I make in the book is that um, Heidi is really a history of anarchism in art. And the reason I say that is because John and Sunday Reed were turned on to art through the writings of Herbert Reed a well-known anarchist in England in, in the 30s, in, in particular in his book, Art Now. And so they found this incredibly um, um, exciting. And also that the people that they associated with them were actually known anarchists. They they called themselves anarchists. I mean, Max Harris is a known anarchist. He declares himself to be an anarchist. I mean, um, Har- um, uh, Stuart, um, uh, not, not Stuart, um, um, um james Macaulay, you know in, in, his, in his early younger stages, days. <laughs> Again, <laughs> in his younger days in his younger <laughs> days but this is when they're all young you see that he's an anarchist i mean um they but, they understood anarchist ideology and they were publishing anarchists and reading anarchist treatises and and books and 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 were political. trying to you know, you create give, an alternative
2: but you give the um the you know, you give the ancestry in detail. I mean, uh, Sunday Reed was a baileur. Uh John Reed's family were old grazier stock, weren't they, from Tasmania? Is that right? So th- they came from money. I, there's an interesting line that you quote uh, in one of the poems: uh, "An anarchist, Lenin said, was a bourgeois turned inside out." <laughs>
3: Yeah, that's. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's true, isn't it? Isn't that part well,
3: of the argument? <laughs> well, well, one of one of the ways I see it is that sort of uh, when it, when it comes to art, it's it's really um, not a good idea to see. Art, um, uh, art in in respect as a, um, a the hierarchy of society. You know the working class and the lumpen proletariat down below, and the rich in the upper class uh, uh, up the top. Because w- what happens in art, and this was actually borne out by um, uh, John Berger. Uh, um, yeah, it's sort of a ways of seeing uh, if, for people who might know his book, um, and he talks, and he, and he talks about the artists actually come from all stratas of the, the hierarchy, uh, from the top to the bottom, and so he he establishes that it's not actually a horizontal notion of the hierarchy, but with art, it's a vertical cut down the down the whole of the hierarchy where all the artists. And the disenfranchised, and that doesn't mean that, you know, if you're rich, you can't cry. I mean, <clears throat> and in particular, when it comes to anarchist history, the, um, uh, I mean, anarchists, you know, there were princes. I mean, Kropotkin was a prince. You know, there's a lot of anarchists who come from the upper echelons of society who actually saw what was going on and didn't want to be part of it or alternatively wanted to change it. In particular, what happens is with John and Sunday Reed is that <clears throat> they do a modern contract with the artist. Like in the book, I talk about the kind of contract some of the uh, artists used to have, like the, the, if there were, uh, an artist was being commissioned to do um, a painting, they, um, they, would, they would write out a contract and they would say, you you can use so many dollars worth of um, vermilion or so many dola- uh, dollars for gold, uh, so much. Uh, then they would say you would have to do the face and then you would have to do the cow in the background or you would have to do this. It was all written in the contract of how the painting was supposed to come out. And so it was actually being dictated to or in fact written or painted by the the patron themselves and then in the contract they said well in exchange we will give you so many so many trees that you can burn in winter we'll give you so much grain we'll give you so much money now if you translate that into John and um, Sunday Reed's uh, interaction w- with the artists, it's very much in that mode in that they, they saw themselves as being uh, obliged to give the, the artists that they supported um, uh, shelter, money, um, uh, uh, the nutrients of books and information, um, also suggestions, also aesthetics, and this was this was the vortex in which all these people existed that's why it was so exciting
2: there was a cost too and the trajectory of the book uh, and the last you know 50 pages where it's all disintegrating and particularly uh, you know the way the men male artists were letting their egos run rampant at the expense of the women uh, the the way the sexual freedom uh, was you know, uh, causing a great toll on relationships as well. So um, there was something, I think you actually call it Eden at yeah. one point, uh, but it's Paradise Lost as well. Uh, I mean, ultimately it disintegrates.
3: Yeah, look, I I really um, feel for all the people towards the end, you know. I, I really do, because... To me, it was um, uh, just an absolutely amazing experiment, an amazing um, um, slap in the face of public taste to try and sort of create an alternative when there wasn't an awful lot that they could rely on. I mean, most of their models that they took came from overseas and in Europe, and through the anarchist movement, um, in particular, and and also the rebels and and the dissidents um, within all these organisations. And they were trying to create something. um, And they put everything on their line, they put their money on the line, they put their bodies on the line, they put their intellects on the line, they put their aesthetics on the line, they put absolutely everything into it and um to see it collapse um it w- was really you know very sad you know i mean because they were all very beautiful people i mean in in, in i mean a friend of mine once one, one said you know all you know all my friends are beautiful and I agree, you know, when you have friends and and they are beautiful people, you, you and, and you know, both physically and mentally, you know, you, you just adore them. And I think that that's what was happening there. And it was, an, they, they didn't have a rule book to find out how to live communally. They didn't have a, any, you know, models that they could go to. They were trying to find models. I mean, uh, Herbert Reed, for instance, you know, uh, it, it, um uh advised um peggy guggenheim you know to start a um an art gallery and that it was that it was that impetus there that was translated into john and sunday reed for them to start an art gallery too in 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 melbourne you know that was one of their dreams you know it comes out of herbert reed yeah so um I just
2: want to pick up on a comment you made earlier that all artists are wank- that you still think artists are wankers, because um, I'm not going to let you get away with all this stuff <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> uh, I, I assume you mean they're wankers because they don't use words. Is that right?
3: <laughs> well, I mean. If you go to these art gallery openings and stuff, you know, it, it you know, so much of it is so trite. And you know, but I say that about poetry too, you know, most poetry books are trite. Um and 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 you know, I, I've I've got no time for novels, I've got no time for plays, um, and art I'm actually I I start to like more and more, mainly because of Sandy, my partner, um, who's sort of opened my eyes, I suppose, to, you know, what was going on and also she opened my eyes up to um, the connection that I had with Heidi, you know, because to me it was just, you know, a bit of a poetry scene um, rather than an art scene, you know.
2: Yes, I think that's really moving in the um, in the whole book, the way it does read really like an education as well and uh, the way you insert yourself uh, into it, especially uh, towards the end. Um, but I just wanted to um, move the discussion on to the texture of your own writing or your own art, if you like, and to come back to, uh, you know, your use, um, which of uh, riddles, proverbs, statistics, um, in extraordinary facts. And I just wondered if you could read some of uh, the Percy Granger poem, um, which, you know, really um, uh, brings that texture, empirical texture, I guess, but also... Very dramatic, very rhythmical uh, texture of words uh, to the fore.
3: Well, I'll read the poem and we can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Percy Granger. Percy Granger was born in Brighton, Australia, in 1882, where he was taught to play the piano. A whale's heart beats nine times a minute. A shrimp's heart is in its head. Moths don't have stomachs. Giraffes don't have vocal cords. Between 1901 and 1905, he made extensive recordings in Europe of old folk songs. Mushrooms break through concrete. A cock's egg is a simpleton's. It's a good year for kidney beans. Microwave popcorn jump about the bins. In 1914, to make an ox of it, he moved to the United States and became a citizen. Fish blow bubbles during sex. Bees choreograph what what they know. There's no mention of cats in the Bible. Tulips originated in Istanbul. He wrote a lot of serious music too, and a collection of what he called fripperies, like an English country garden. Jellyfish hang around in smacks. Apple pips contain cyanide. Cashews are native to the Amazon. Forget-me-nots are everyone's. In 1928, he married an Aryan princess, Ella Strom, at the Hollywood Bowl, in front of 22,000 people. Wasps taste like pine nuts. Basil should be torn, not cut. Earwigs are vegetarian. Leaf beetles suck the leaves of plants. In 1935, he financed a museum. At Melbourne University, in his honour, forgive us our trespasses. In 26 years later, died building an unusual music machine in his cellar. Large trees give us more shade than fruit. Azaleas are are protected. You pick up olives with a spoon, not fork. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. Think of it all as a piano scroll called turnips.
2: Right. Over to now, you.
3: <laughs> now, the thing about that poem is that what I did, I I, I got his, you know, uh, English country garden because I'm a heathen. That's all I really knew about him until I actually got into him. And the idea was that sort of it goes on. Um, how many kinds of sweet flowers grow in an English country garden? I'll tell you now some that I know and those I miss so surely pardon. Now that, what I did is I took his biography, which was the speaking part, and then I just filled it up with, instead of details like, you know, daffodils and hearties and um, and meadow uh, sweets and all that, I filled them up with facts so that the da-na-na-na-na-na was just this information overload just coming at you. And the reason I did that was because he was once asked, you know, what is that poem, uh, what is that song really all about? And his stock answer was, it's about turnips because he was sick to death of people asking him what art was about, basically. So this poem is actually about turnips okay. as much as anything else. Now, the thing about, I like the idea of throwing facts in. I like, ages ago, I, I discovered that um, facts were being used against the working class. When I was doing a magazine called 9 to 5, which was a workers' magazine in the 80s, um uh, wh- I did a remarkable thing. I, I sort of I, I went to the Australian Bureau of Statistics when you could actually walk in before computers or anything, and the, you know the, I wrote a poem about it. it goes: um, I went to the Australian Bureau of Statistics and asked them for one of everything. I got how many umbrellas they made, how many pickled onions, how many dams, deaths, deaths, doctors, drivers, ducks. There is, are, was, gas, gates, geese, gherkins, and I realised that this this these facts these inform these bits of information could be used as images and as a poet I'm interested in the use of images I'm interested as image as metaphor and so I started to develop the poetry of facts and information because when you get into the book you actually been bombarded with all this all, all this information but actually they're all converted into facts so the, it's not just informations where I just elaborate about, you know, how many hearts are um, monkeys got or whatever. Um, I, I actually just state it as a fact. And can and you tell me? Can you tell us where you get the facts from? Ah, now, well, this is what I found. Initially, I started um, uh, getting all my facts out of, um, out of out of out of books. You know, I'd, you know, go to readings, I'd look up all the shelves, all the information shelves, you know, the science shelves, you know, I'd be going through them, you know, I'd be going to secondhand places and picking up all, you know, children's books about science, you know, because they actually wrote the facts plain and simple, you know, and I was actually interested in the plain and simple fact. And so I started to collect these facts or or what were exciting facts, facts that i was you know um uh, interested in and 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 facts about mathematics also it wasn't just facts you know about um you know how many politicians you know were on a on a, on, um, on a pin um it, it, i was using science and information from everywhere. And when the computer came along, I thought, oh, you beauty. So I jumped on the computer looking for facts. And after a while, I noticed that the facts that you can get off the computer are boring as shit. They get regurgitated by different sites over and over again. And you can actually see these people thinking, you know. And I thought, well, that's no good because anyone looking for facts, they're just going to pick up the same facts. But books were something that, the, the computer world was not using, but I still was. And I thought, great, this obsolete sort of information um, bin will be where I will go and where I'll pull my facts out. And that was fantastic because I was able to um, take my time. I knew there was no one looking over my shoulder because I could just go through this thing. All right, I want that. I want this bit. I can cheat here. I don't have to cheat here and, and put it all together. So I think you told me that um,
2: uh, this was largely in op shops and secondhand bookshops because the very people who were using the, the internet uh, for their facts were getting rid of their books, their encyclopedias and dictionaries and proverbs, and you can pick them up very cheaply there.
3: And rem- and remainder books too, yeah. Um, yeah. Look, um, I, I found I found that you know, like most people, you know, especially younger people, you know, they, you know, their whole notion is, you know, I need to be in the future. I need to know the computer. I need to be able to work on the computer. But what interests me and uh, is that, um, you can't have revolutionary poetry without having some kind of tradition. That can get you there you actually need the tradition to be able to move forward to build on it and so um, to me the 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 best part is always when you're in in a state of transition that is the most fruitful um, area to play in 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 that crossover section it's no good just jumping into the future and say hey here i am you know i'm going to become a, a genius of some kind on the computer and, and sort of dismiss the past that, that that kind you know to me that doesn't produce great literature it's when you take the past with you and rework it into the future that you get the best nutrients um, I mean, it's
2: not just about making the past present in the poems. Those um, facts, as you call them, um, have, a, have a kind of rhythmical function. They, they're actually expressionistic because at moments of crisis or drama uh, in the poem, suddenly there'll be this outburst <laughs> of facts, some of which are themselves, like if it's an explosion of emotion, some of those will be explosive in nature. Isn't
3: that right? Yeah, it, Yes, that's right. What I found is that once I wrote the poem and put the facts in, you know, like facts that don't really belong, i just throwing them in. I'm, I mean, they're not as random as they sound, actually, but let's say I just throw them in. What I found was that when I went back to it and forgot how I constructed the poem, I couldn't actually dismantle those poems and, 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 and sort of rewrite them. They, I, I couldn't work out where the facts were they all seem to belong somehow. And that was really exciting. But the other thing was that in, in, in one sense that I was writing a kind of symbolist poetry and I'm not talking about a symbolist poetry where you talk about the moon and the stars and, you know, men and women as being you know, symbolist. Um, But the notion that the, that, that facts turned into images that then took on their own life and, in one sense, you kind of go into a, a dream sequence with these facts because, really, some of them are just you, – you can't instantly um, uh, digest them. And so you kind of go into this dream, but I always take you back out. Like, you know, I always take you back into the information that I'm playing with. And then sometimes that information, which is the point of the poem sort of thing, it goes into a dream while you go off – onto these irrelevant facts, which are really quite interesting in their own right. And so so the, this, effect,
2: the, the effect is uh, encyclopedic, basically. Uh,
3: yes, I, I love the idea of, uh, of a poetry of encyclopedia, for sure. Good point, yeah. Why? Why do you like it so much? Um, I, I like the fact that sort of you can open up a, you know, a huge book and and just immerse yourself in, in, or swim in all this text, in, in all this information, um, that is actually interesting, as opposed to that modernist modernist notion that it's not interesting. It doesn't matter what it means. I do worry about what it means. I'm actually interested in meaning. I'm interested in content. You know, my my argument about modernism is that if if um, if content doesn't matter, then you won't mind if I use some. So I use content. I'm interested in content. I'm interested in saying something, you know, and it's it's my something, but I'm also interested in challenging the techniques, you know, re, re you know, re swirling around the text, you know, the information.
2: Yeah, that's the v- vortex idea again. But I'm interested in um, uh, uh, this encyclopedic movement uh, from a specific. Uh, incident or a specific place way out into the universe, because that's the way Fitzroy functions for you. I mean, Fitzroy is at the heart of all three of these epic <laughs> works. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and yet, and yet um, it's the focus, it just builds into into Cosmos, really.
3: Yeah, well, the, the connection between, like, Hi- Heidi and Fitzroy is huge. Like, I mean, you've got the artists out, out of Heidi who are coming into Fitzroy and painting. I mean, Vasiliev... He actually painted the laneways that I grew up in. You know, some of those pictures that Vasiliev has has um, has done is, you know, uh, you know, straight. You know, they they're almost photographs of where I grew up. I mean, they're they're so good. Um, um, Tony Birch also has that af- affinity with um, uh, Vasiliev's uh, paintings. You know, he I, I can I can virtually tell you the laneways. That he painted those paintings in, you know, there's no signpost, but I can tell you exactly the feeling, and he does capture it. But then, sort of, the Boyd's, you know, and um, um, uh, um, Arthur Boyd, you know, they, um, Tucker, um, they they all came to paint in Fitzroy, you know, uh, Yossel Berger, um Berger. Um, Berger. And
2: further back too. Um,
3: Who's that? Sorry. Further back too, you've got connections to. Um, the previous generation. Well, that's right, because if you if you, if you look at um uh, um Tom Roberts, you know, uh, he 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 sort of grows up in Collingwood. He lives in Fitzroy, a block away from Bouville. He idolises Bouville, who teaches Tom Roberts, and and Tom uh, Roberts wants to go out to where Bouville uh, painted, so he goes out to Heidi. and that you know, and so the connection and. So the, the connection with Heidi and Fitzroy and Tom uh, um, um, uh, Tom Roberts, sorry, I'm sorry, Tom Phillips, uh, Tom Roberts, um, is that um, the uh, that um, Sunday Sunday Reed knew the um, um, in, uh, impressionists. She she was painted by Streeton. You know, um, the, the family had these painters come to dinner, that she grew, she was not awed by the uh, impressionists, the Australian impressionists, you know, she understood what was going on there. In fact, one of the important things she she emphasises and continuously pushes with um, um, Sidney Nolan is that the landscape tradition has not finished in Australia because they considered modernism not to be of landscape. You know where she insisted that the job had not been finished, and I think that is one of her great contributions. But the other thing about landscape, and this is where Sweeney Reed becomes really important, is because, uh, I mean, to understand Sweeney Reed proper, you've got to understand that the 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 attack against modernism, um, or the reactionary forces against it, came at a time when when um, when um surrealism was um in the ascendancy now the thing about surrealism is that it's where art and poetry merge it is that moment where language uh, the text and painting come together in fact it's argued that the surrealists were quite literary with all their dreams you know i mean and so i think
2: this is your argument for concrete poetry as well but I need Quite you to, to make the point really quickly because uh, we haven't got much time and I'd like to end with a reading, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, because you mentioned Sunday Read and I thought, well, why don't we finish with a reading about uh, the relationship between Sunday Read and Joy Hester, uh, the poem that you mentioned to me. Um, four, five, five, I think it was, four, four, five. W-
3: what was the number? Um, oh, Eden. Yeah. Ah, okay. Eden, to be swept off one's feet. Not, not
2: the whole poem. Um,
3: not the whole poem, no, no.
2: no. It's um, just the bottom, I think, wasn't it?
3: Uh,
2: yeah, okay. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, that's it, go ahead.
3: Well, I've got so many
2: to read. It's it's. No, no, read that one, to be swept off one's feet.
3: Hang on. Okay, to be swept off one's feet is to lose all sense of discernment. Sunday knew her literature and would push John on to explain his outlook. Herbert Reed came to them early, Sunday, 24. John, four years older, both from the upper echelons of society. Anarchism isn't an abstract idea, but an organic outgrowth with empathy at the heart of it. That's its secret. Some say they can see fire shooting out of a magnet, A or nay. John and Sunday were on the same wavelength. Communal relationships were a feature of Heidi. No one asked for more than what they could give. A V sign with a palm shown outwards signifies victory. Facing inwards, an obscene gesture. One doesn't start with a theory. One discovers one's been going along with one since ever. The story gets told over and over. To your is to rock and roll from side to side. In 1923, Sunday was presented to society and fell in love with a gold digger who only wanted her money. The family didn't like him. But liberation comes at a price. They ran off to Europe together chasing butterflies and he gave her gonorrhea. She came back to Melbourne, tail between her legs and now unable to have children. She knotted up her hysterias as Rimbaud would have put it. But Bertrand Russell and D.H. Lawrence and Herbert Reed and George Woodcock all came to the rescue and showed John and Sunday the way to free love. Every time an exhaust valve opens, there's a sudden rush of pressure. She pushed, he pulled, and together they became a couple. Only women know how to invade the male psyche. The proper management of light in a gallery is important to present the eye from being offended. They read, The News from Nowhere by Russell Morris, Walt Walt Whitman, Emerson, Thoreau and the Anarchists. They were in love with everything and each other. I guess if I feel lucky, John said to Sunday one day, you must be feeling lucky also. A herd of goats in a dream is a sign of good fortune. John was fundamental to her being and vice versa. He had a great respect for her happiness, and for others also. Aristotle taught that the fetus developed from a coagulum of menstrual blood. The kitten must have its face licked every so often.
2: Thanks very much, Pai. That's wonderful.
3: Oh, thank so, you. Well,
2: I think we have to stop there, unfortunately.
3: Do we? <laughs> Why don't we just keep going? Well, what like- are they going to do, chop us?
2: Yeah, Christine's gonna chop us for sure. <laughs> but the poem I wanted you to read was actually about Joy Hester and but we'll come No, no, but okay. we'll come back. We'll come back to it. I think that really is the human heart of the book that you just quoted.
3: Well, it's one of there's actually quite a few human hearts in <laughs>
1: there.
3: So what is it over now? I mean Christine, over to you.
1: I think yeah. Uh, what, a, what an extraordinary night thank you so much thank you so much for your readings thank you thank so you. much for your questions Ava. thank you so much for giving us and no, new understanding and your appreciation of our laneways of the of our past uh, we're so honored to have you as part of our online program It's such a treat to have an award-winning poet like yourself as part of Readings program. It means all the world to us. I'm so, I was so delighted when you mentioned coming into Readings on your fact-finding missions (laughs) And and I thought, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for giving us that. He I'm didn't buy anything, too.
2: though. He just looked. He just browsed. He didn't buy anything.
1: I'm sure no, that's no, not no. true. I'm yes. sure, I'm sure no, that's not true at all. I'm magazine. sure he spent all, all of the money that he earned as a poet uh, at Readings. <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's not the only one. <laughs> well,
3: actually, my first poetry book was um, uh, Readings sold um, in 1972. Fitzrott. And it sold for 10 cents, and that
1: was expensive. And I'm sure it was a bestseller as well. I think <laughs> it's only only fair to say that if we were, in fact, in one of the reading shop, that there would be overwhelming applause for you right now, that it would be very difficult to hear your words. But I would like to finish uh, by thanking Ivor for his time and his dedication to all of you to all of the poets in Australia and in particular to you. I think he is one of your champions.
3: Oh, he the definitely man. is, and he yeah, he really is. He's magnificent.
1: He really yes, is. Either. He really is. And to each and every one of you, shall we finish with some words from Pia? Let us go to that part of the brain, controlling speech, discovered in 1852, and open it, like David Brewster did in 1816 when he invented the cardoscope. Good night, everyone. Good night.
0: Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. While there, you could sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.